Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, and I do hope that you do, open up to the book of Genesis. It's the easiest book in the Bible to find. Because it's the first one. Genesis chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1 in just a moment. Um, man, I'm so thankful for worship. Amen. I'm so thankful we get to spend time before his throne, uh, to lift him up, to honor him and all these things. And I, I got to say, I know our worship team's a little lighter than usual. We've, we've got quite a few people that are gone that are usually in the worship team. But uh, I got to be honest, I love the acoustic feel to the worship this morning. I thought it was just a really, really cool uh, way to worship God this morning. And hearing God's people sing is always a great blessing. Uh, this morning... I want to kind of help us answer a question that I think is really one of the most important questions we can come to an answer on in our own lives. Um, So many times we have so many things that come up in the course of a day, the course of a week, decisions we have to make, choices we have to make. But I think there's a choice that we need to come to, an understanding that we need to have that, that really the answer to this question alleviates so much stress and so much frustration in our lives. And the question is simply this, who is steering your life? Who is steering your life? And so I know some of you may have a certain song that was popular a few years ago come into your mind about a steering wheel and about Jesus. Now, I'm not going to reference any more than that because it's, I find that song kind of silly, just to be honest. That's just me. I told somebody before the service I was debating whether she even referenced the song because to me, if a mother is driving a vehicle and loses control of the vehicle and there's a child in the back seat and their response is just let go of the wheel, that could be the definition of bad parenting. That's just not, CPS should be involved at some point. Someone should be notified. The child should be taken away. Like, that's just not a good idea. But the idea of that song and the way, the reason I think it took off in so many people's lives and it just really kind of was a song that a lot of people took a lot of heart in is because I think a lot of times we tend to only give God control of our lives when it seems like our life is out of control. And I would wonder, maybe it's not true of you, but I know it's true of my life. I would wonder if I gave God control of my life all the time, maybe then I wouldn't feel like my life is so out of control. You get where I'm going with this? And sometimes we wait until it's just, God, I have no other option. I don't know what to do. And then we give him control. When really he's saying, man, if you would have given me control before, you still would have walked this road, but it would have been a whole different perspective you would have walked it with. Over the last so many weeks, we have talked a lot about what would Jesus undo. We spent four weeks talking about the things that Jesus would undo in our lives. We also spoke last week about our great and good Heavenly Father who is truly the world's best dad. And as we combine those two thoughts together, it is these topics and ideas that have led me to talk this morning. If He is our good and loving and gracious Heavenly Father, and we desire to do what Jesus would do in this life, then we must be willing to give God complete control of our lives. So we talked about what would Jesus undo with the desire that we would do what Jesus wants us to do. We said, okay, Jesus would undo spiritual pride in our lives. Jesus would have us to be humble. So because that's what Jesus asks, he is our Savior. We humble ourselves, as Peter says, under the mighty hand of God. We want to do what Jesus would do in this life. 
And we want to do what Jesus would do because he is our Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose again. He loved us first. He gave his grace to us. And when we receive him, we have everlasting life. We can now set for eternity in heaven with him by his glory, and we praise him for it. It's all about him. So if Jesus is that Savior, and then we learned last week how good and loving and gracious our Heavenly Father is, and we talked about this, our Father is a good Father because He loves His children. Amen? If you're thankful for the love of God, that should be reflected in our lives. And God loves us, and how does God show us that love? Well, He, he teaches His children, Right? He gave you the Holy Spirit of God to indwell you at the moment of salvation. So when you open up this book, the Word of God, you begin to read the content therein. He begins to illuminate or open your mind to the truth. He teaches us. He gives us a church and spiritual leaders in our lives to teach us and equip us. And I'll say it again. And I feel just in recent, maybe the last year, two years, I see and I say it often, I know, some of you are just like, man, move on. But I'm telling you, I was just doing some more studying this week about some of the silliness that is being portrayed as Christ-like or Christianity in churches today. Just utter foolishness. This drunk in the spirit and all this. It's just silliness. But people see this stuff on TV they see this stuff in media. They, they hear these things. We have to know God teaches us through his word, by his Holy Spirit, so that we're discerning of what's being taught to us by mankind. So when a human teacher says something, thus saith the Lord, we have the spirit of God and the word of God to go, is that really what the Bible says? Is that, is that really what Jesus said? And so often I think we just, we, we kind of, quench the spirit, we listen to the teacher, the human teacher, because, well, he's got a big following. He's written some good books. He, he seems really charismatic as far as his personality. He's really likable. So we elevate that human speaker, and we're not no longer listening to, did I just say not no longer? I'm pretty sure if you're an English person, that just really, like the hairs on the back of your head stood up there. Not no longer. We have to understand that God teaches his children because he loves us. God corrects his children, amen, because he loves us. When we're going to kind of sideways and we're drifting into sin, he corrects us. He teaches us. He corrects us. He shows us these things. He wants to use us in this world. But if we believe those things, all these things we talked about for five, six weeks now, we come to this point and ask, okay, but am I giving him complete control of my life? And you might say, I've already received Christ as my Savior. Well, praise God. If you know Christ is your Savior, then, then amen, your sins are forgiven. You are redeemed of God. But that's not the question I'm asking you today. Because I see, I think, I think a lot of Christians receive Christ and they give him control initially. And they surrender initially. But as time goes on, as human beings, we can drift into taking some of that control back. We start thinking, well, God, I, I trust you with my eternal soul, but today I, I need to be in control. God, I just don't think you can handle this situation or that situation. I have seen bumper stickers. Maybe you've seen these that say, God is my co-pilot. God is my co-pilot. Another one I've seen before says, a carpenter is my co-pilot. 
And I think the same thing every time I read one of those kind of bumper stickers. There's a life which is heading for destruction and frustration. Anytime I see somebody or hear somebody say, well, Jesus is my co-pilot, I initially think, man, I'm really sorry for you. Because you're going to go through some things. Because Jesus and God himself never in the word of God ever claims or desires to be our co-pilots. God never is okay with sitting next to us as we steer and he gives us little encouragements on where to turn the boat. Where to turn the plane. No, no, no. God's desire is that we would get out of the driver's seat and say, no, 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 no. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want you to be in control. He is not a co-pilot. He is the pilot. And he is the one that is in control. We have to trust that. I want to look at a familiar story and see what this looks like when God steers our life. Genesis chapter 12, very familiar passage, familiar individual. I hope it is anyway. If it's not familiar to you, I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 12 and introduce yourself to the person of Abram, who will soon be called Abraham. And I encourage you to study the life of Abraham and to realize that Abraham has a lot in common with most of us, if not all of us. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Thou shalt be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, we meet one of the most important men in Scripture. He is one of the most important men of Scripture. The man of Abram or Abraham. God called Abraham to do what? He called him to go to a land that he would show him. Catch that now. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. He doesn't tell him where he's going. He says, no, I'll tell you and show you in the going. And some of you need to write that down. Some of you need to make a mental note of that if you're not taking physical notes. God is a God at times in our life will show us where he wants us to go in the going. It's, it's when I step up and step out and I start taking those steps of faith, that's when all of a sudden he says, okay, now here's the next step. Okay, here's the next step. Okay, here's the next step. But do we like that about God? Let's be honest. Do we like that as human beings about God? We hate that about God. If you're being honest, how many of you wish or have wished maybe at times in your life that God would lay out the next five years for you and show you exactly what's going to happen where so you could prepare for it? Raise your hand if that's you, if you have to be prepared. Okay, it's most of us. Most of us would rather be prepared and know where we're going. He's called to leave everything familiar to him. It's a huge request to leave what was convenient, to leave his family, to leave his home. And again, not to a clear and explained future, but a vague and unclear destination. What made him go? What made him get up and go in that moment of decision? God, I don't know where you're going to send me, but you asked me to go, so I'm going to go. He didn't go because God answered all of the questions about the destination. God, is it safe there? God, will my family be protected? God, will you, am I going to have a job when I get there? Am I going to be able to provide for things when I get there? God, what's the land like? Is it hot? Is it cold? Am I going to be comfortable there? Is it Michigan where it's a different temperature every 20 minutes? God, what kind of place are you sending me to? 
God, where, where, where am I going? What's it look like? He didn't go because God convinced him it was going to be great for Abraham. Now, you might say, well, he says he's going to bless him. What does that mean, though, to Abraham? Abraham knows idea, no idea what that means. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I have no idea what that means. Abraham doesn't know how that's going to benefit him directly in the moment of going. He says, I'm going to do this. I want to call you to this. Abraham went solely because he trusted not in where he would end up, but in who was calling him to step out. Abraham went because he wasn't trusting in, or he didn't go because he was trusting in where he would end up. He went because he trusted in the one that was calling him out. And I tell you right now from my own life experience, and maybe you've seen this in your own life, but I tell you from the word of God greater than my experience, that when we will just trust in the one calling us to step up and step out, we will find greater blessing, not because of the stuff we get, because of the presence of God in our lives and the peace that he gives because we stepped out. So I want to look at this a little bit farther, this idea of Abraham, and we're going to look at another Old Testament example in just a moment about a life surrendered. A life surrendered. What does it look like to let God steer your life? It's a life surrendered. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read it already. But I want you to note there in verse 1 what he says. It says, get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred. So he's saying, get out of your country, get out of your tribe, get out of your father's house. Leave your country, leave your tribe, leave your father. Now to us, that's like when you got 18, 19 years old, and you wanted to get out of the house. And if God would have said, I want you to leave your father and mother, you'd have been like, sweet, I'm out. But we can't think that way in Abraham's life and culture. In Abraham's understanding culturally, this is a huge step. In Abraham's day, the family or the tribe would provide all the protection, all the provision, and all the rights for the individuals within the tribe. So think about this. The family, the tribe, provides all the rights, the protection, and the provision to the individual in the tribe. You had your identity in the tribe, in the family. We understand this idea as American citizens. We can kind of relate it this way. Um, when I traveled overseas, I had to get a passport. And when I landed in, we went from Chicago to Munich, Germany for a missions trip that I did. And when I landed in Munich, I had to walk in, I had to show them that little book. And this is an amazing little book. It's a powerful little book. And on the front of that book is the seal of the United States of America. And it says right now, United States of America. When I handed that book to that person, everything is now changing. Because the minute I handed that passport to them, do you know what I was telling them? I'm a citizen of this country. This country provides my rights, my protection. If anything happens to me in this country, this little book says that the entire United States of America is backing me up. Now, you might think that sounds kind of silly. This is the way to illustrate this, to try to think about it in the way of Abraham's day. If I was thrown in prison in Romania, I, I, there's not, it's not like only my wife or only my family would come to, to help. That little magic book says, no, 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 no. He has citizenship of this country. The United States of America is going to speak for him. So now that we get a little bit of that idea that that little book, no matter where I go in the world, that book connects me back to my country, my, if you will, my tribe. 
And so Abraham here is being called to leave all of that. Just go, just leave everything. When God called him out from his family, he was calling him out to leave behind his provision, his protection. He was calling him to trust in God, that God would keep him. To trust in God. You know what God was saying? Abraham, I want you to trust in me for your protection. I want you to trust in me for your provision. I want you to trust in me that I'll have your rights in mind. I want you to trust in me that I will watch over you, that I will be there for you, that I will take care of you. In this moment when Abraham decides to leave, we would call him a sojourner. Maybe you've heard Abraham refer to this way, a sojourner. All a sojourner means is one who settles in a land that he was not from originally. One that settles in a land he was not from originally. Can we just be honest for a minute? We're just passing through as children of God, amen? We were from this land originally, but the minute we were saved, guess what happened? What does the Bible say? Isn't this cool how God uses cultural understandings? It says you were outside the body of Christ, and now you're in the body of Christ. You've been baptized, immersed, submerged in the body of Christ. You know what he says? You were outside the family of God. Now you're in the family of God. You know what that means? As part of the family of God, he's got your protection. He's got your provision. You don't got to worry about your rights. He's got your rights. And it's so hard for us as independent American thinking people to step out and stop worrying about our comfort and our security and say, no, God, if you're calling me and I'm your son, then you're going to watch over me. You're going to provide for me. You're going to take care of me. And Abraham's being called to trust in God this way. Something interesting to think about, if you've read through the book of Genesis, by the time you get to chapter 12, you realize that God or the knowledge of God is a little limited. Okay, now what, how did God communicate with Adam and Eve before the fall? The Bible says he walked with them, he communicated with them. Could you just imagine for a second, I know we're short on time, but I want us to think about this. Could you ever imagine just walking with God? Like just walking through a garden and God's standing next to you and you're just having a conversation? Now I know some of you spiritual ones, you're like, brother, you know someone's going to try to sell you on something when they start with brother, right? Like, brother. And like, all of a sudden they're from like Alabama when they start talking to you and you're like, you're from like Michigan. Why are you talking like that? I, every time I pray, I walk with God. Now, is that true? Yes. Every time we go to him in prayer, we're in the presence of God. By the way, he, if you have his Holy Spirit, he's with you all the time, whether you're praying or not. And yes, that's true, and I get that. I, I mean, I'm so thankful for that. But man, but to walk with him in the physical, and actually we have a better blessing, right, with the Holy Spirit because he's with us all the time. I can't walk with God all the time physically. But God communicated with Adam and Eve. God talked to them, and then sin came in, and then what did God do? He instituted a sacrificial system. He instituted this idea of covering them and their sin. But then all of a sudden you realize as you read on, God no longer walked with them that way. Sin kind of put a barrier between us and God in that sense. And then as you read through Scripture, you find out God occasionally speaks. God occasionally communicates with mankind. It's not a daily thing. It's not an every moment thing. It's, it's an occasional conversation with one, occasional calling here. Then we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And you read about this idea of the people came together to build a great city, to make themselves great. 
everyone thinks that they built a tower to heaven to go to heaven. No, no, no. That's not what it means. It means a tower that reached to the skies, a skyscraper. Think of it that way. Um, the Space Needle, the Sears Tower, these ideas, uh, the Empire State Building. And what were those things made to show? Look how powerful we are as mankind. Look how smart we are. Look how powerful we are and majestic we are in our creations. And God divided them with language. He dispersed them through the earth, which what was his original calling to Adam and Eve? What was it to Noah? It was to multiply and fill the earth. God wants us to fill his creation. And we get to Genesis 11, and they weren't doing that. They were just kind of bunched together, not doing what God said. So God did it for them. And then you see Genesis chapter 12, we see God speak again to a man named Abram. And the minute he speaks to Abram, Abram's calling is this, you will be the father of a great nation. And what nation will that be? The nation of Israel. And what's Israel's mission all through the Old Testament? To go unto the countries and to what? Show them there is one true God. So he disperses them and then he calls his children to go communicate to them that he loves them. See, God communicates all throughout the Old Testament. But when you read Genesis 12, and he has this conversation with Abram, it's, it's a different kind of a communication than even before. We don't see this kind of communication and this often, really, since Adam and Eve. But when God speaks to Abram in Genesis 12 and verse 1, Abram's knowledge of God is actually quite limited. I mean, compare Abram's knowledge of God to our knowledge of God today. I would say we know much more about God in our life right now, and there's more available to us as far as the revelation of God than what Abram had in Genesis chapter 12 when it was just merely orally passed down generation to generation. However, even though Abram had, we think, very little knowledge of God, he had faith in God. Faith in God that surpassed even the little bit of knowledge he had in God. Which leads us to a question. When did his faith start? When did his faith start? When does our faith start? Well, first and foremost, faith is a gift from God given to all people. He gives all mankind the ability to believe. But I believe we realize our faith with knowledge of God from the word of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that. The truth is Abraham knew the least about God at this point, and yet trusted God and risked more than anyone for God. Abram knew most likely the least about God at this point in his life, but yet trusted God to step out and risk everything for God. I truly believe it was a combined effort of God working on Abram's heart and Abram responding in faith. This is how it works for us today as well. Faith is really God working on our heart and then us choosing by our own free will to respond to God's initiation and to respond in faith and to step out and trust. You see, we too are called to trust. Jesus called his disciples to follow him, and there was no guarantee of what that meant. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What in the world does that mean? Now, we know what that means, right? We have a pretty good idea. We think we know what that means. Is it literal? Should I go get a literal fishing pole with a literal hook and just go to the mall and start hooking people in the food court? Just drawing them in? Okay, you could try that. You're going to probably get the snot kicked out of you pretty quick, okay? Start hooking people, okay? I just had the mental image of some guy standing in the food court. Right? Getting this guy. I don't know what we'd use for bait, all kinds of things, right? Anyway, 
So did someone say French fries? Did I hear French fries? No, okay, maybe not. McDonald's French fries would be good bait. Anyone would go for that. Okay, so as long as they're hot and not cold, because once a French fry, a McDonald's French fry gets cold, it just becomes, like, unedible. It's just nasty, okay? Anyway, where was I going with this? Okay. <laughs> Bring it in. Bring it in. When Jesus said this to his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, we have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament to put that in context to understand. But his disciples didn't fully know what that meant. Do you really think his disciples, when he called them, when they were fishing, do you really think they thought, man, we're going to follow this guy and it's probably going to cost us our life. We're probably going to be martyred for this guy, but we're going to follow him anyway because I'm sure he'll bless us for it. You think that's really what they, ran through their mind? They had no idea what was coming if they followed Christ. But see, what's interesting is Jesus didn't sell the disciples on all the benefits and pleasure first. Jesus didn't sell them on why they should follow or how it's going to benefit them. He merely called them to follow with the promise that they would reach people. They had no clue all that awaited them. Here's the truth. When we believe Jesus is who he says he is, it will make perfect sense to trust and follow him wherever we may end up. It's amazing to me that when you read the entirety of the New Testament, the disciples never complained. Those that followed Christ never complained about what it cost them to follow Christ. You remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples and Peter says, Lord, we've, lost, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get out of the deal? Then you meet that same Peter in First and Second Peter and you realize he doesn't even seem to care about what he gets out of the deal. He actually says, man, to suffer for Christ is a blessing and a joy. He says, I'll do it joyfully and willfully. See, the disciples who follow Christ never complain about what it costs them. We too, as Abraham was in Genesis 12, are called to follow, to follow, to step out. Not because we have a guarantee of what everything's going to look like and how it's all going to play out. We're just called to follow. So how do we do this? Well, how do we live the surrendered life? We let him take complete control. Complete control. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 6. I mentioned one other Old Testament example, and this is the one we're going to go to. Genesis chapter 6. Many of you know what passage this is dealing with. It is the beginning of this idea of the flood. We know Noah's flood uh, covers a few chapters in Genesis. I'm one of these crazy people that believe God's word is, is really appropriate when it says that God flooded the world. I don't believe this was a regional flood. I do believe this was a global flood. Uh, I believe that God's word is being literal as it's recording this event as far as the flood of Noah. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 15, we read about the, the building of the ark. We have to understand that to give God complete control, we have to let him guide our lives. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 6, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit thou shalt finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shall, shalt thou make it. Now when we read this, first and foremost, the endeavor that Noah undertook to build this thing is insane. The Bible tells us 120 years he built the ark, he preached repentance, and he built the ark. And when we read the building of the ark, we read of all the dimensions of the ark. We read how high, how wide, 
Uh, is there a window in the ark? You can answer. Is there a window in the ark? Is there a door in the ark? Where's the door? On the side, okay? So we have pretty good, I mean, if you had, if, now we've seen Noah's ark depicted so many times, right? And I think our depiction probably is pretty accurate. I think it's much more massive than you realize. Has anyone been to Noah's Ark down in, in South by the Creation Museum and all that, a couple people? Okay, I've not been able to go. I've wanted to go, but our student ministry went a couple years ago, and they brought back some pictures, and I could not get over the size of the thing. Like, it is massive. And when they build this beautiful boat, this large ark, the, the Bible gives us pretty clear blueprint, pretty good instructions, but there's two things that we would expect that are missing. Uh, two things that we would anticipate being in, involved in the blueprint of this massive vessel that are seemingly missing. There is no rudder and there is no sail. There is no rudder and there is no sail. There is no way for Noah to control the ark. Think about that. Could you imagine floating in the ark for the time that he was on board that vessel with no ability to control it? You can't raise the sail, lower the sail. You can't turn it this way or turn it that way. You can't change course. You are literally in the ark under God's complete control. When I, when I notice that, which I've never really, I mean, I knew the ark floated. We always think of it floating along. Right? There wasn't little giraffe heads sticking out, by the way. It's not really how it looked, okay? But when you think about that, just floating along, literally every day you're trusting. Every moment you're trusting. Some of us would freak out with five minutes of no control. Some of us, we can't let go of the wheel because we're so locked on making sure that the course stays exactly as we want it. Noah demonstrated the same faith Abraham exercised and trusted in God's plan. I, I could not imagine the faith of Noah to trust God in this way with zero way to control that massive vessel. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Grand Weaver, says it this way about faith, and I love this. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Grand Weaver, says this about faith. Faith is a thing of the mind. Now, we always don't think of it that way, do we? We think more of an emotional seat. We think the heart. But I love what he says here. Faith is a thing of the mind. If you do not believe that God is in control and has formed you for a purpose, then you will flounder on the high seas of purposelessness, drowning in the currents and drifting further into nothingness. That's powerful. If you do not believe that God is in control and has formed you for a purpose, then you will flounder on the high seas of purposelessness, drowning in the currents and drifting further into nothingness. We have to make a decision today, not an emotional decision, but a logical decision. If Jesus is who he says he is, if God is the father he says he is, then I can trust God with complete control, then I can say, God, my life is yours. I'm surrendered. I'm giving you complete control. And it makes sense, but we have to ask the question, why then, if we know these things, why then don't we give him control, at least not complete control over our lives? Everyone would answer that question slightly differently. 
But I think there are a couple common reasons when you boil it all down. I'll give you three reasons that I believe people will not surrender their lives to him completely. And I'll give you these three reasons because I know I've seen these in my own life when God has challenged me in this area. The first thing I think we can obviously come to quickly is the idea of fear. Fear. I think one of the number one reasons we do not give God complete control is fear. We do not know where surrender will take us. We do not know where surrender will take us, so we're afraid to give him complete control. We want to know the plan. We want to know the destination. But here's the thing. Those of you that raised your hand and said, God, show me five years. Just show me five years of where I'm going to go and where it's going to take me. If you were honest with yourself, you know that if he showed you, you would have quit four and 11 months ago, four years and 11 months ago. If he, show, if he was honest, okay, fine, you want to know? I'm going to take you through this and this, and you're going to be blessed here, but then there's going to be a season of struggle. But that's okay, because this season of struggle produces this in your life. If we really knew all of that, we would, uh, nope, God, I can't, I can't handle it. You're right, you can't handle it. That's why I'm here. That's why I give you a comforter. So just trust in me. Give me control and watch me use it in your life. It's so funny, a couple, maybe like a week ago, we were talking, uh, Sandra and I and the boys, and I don't remember even how we got on this topic, but the idea of changing our past came up. We were watching something on TV and something about, oh, The Lion King. We were watching The Lion King, the cartoon one. Um, and I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to the movies to see The Real Lion King. When they, I'm, that's just on the, bu- the bucket list, okay? Um, I saw the Aladdin one. That was pretty cool. But I grew up loving Aladdin and Lion King. Those are the best Disney movies out there, okay? Um, that's not biblical or gospel. That's just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. But, but we were watching The Lion King. And you guys remember the scene where uh, Simba meets Timon and Pumbaa for the first time. And they're talking about uh, your past. And uh, Timon's advice is what? You've got to put your past behind you. Bad things happen. You can't do anything about it, right? Simba says, right. He says, wrong. You can let it go. You can put it behind you. Never think about it again. Just move on. And then they go into the song, you know, about Akuna Matata or whatever. And we were sitting there t- and watching this movie. And, and, and Josiah was so crazy. Like, I don't know where he says, man, I wish I could change my past. Eight years old. Two thoughts into my mind as a parent. What have you done that I don't know about that you want to change? But he said, that'd be cool to go back and change my, change my past and all this. And then it was kind of this cool moment when we started talking about, well, but our past helps us to become who we are today. Now, here's the thing. This is where we got to draw a line between biblical thinking and humanistic thinking, secularized thinking. There's a mindset out there that once you have experienced these things in your past, like your destiny, your future is set. Like you cannot get out of this box because of these things that have happened, you'll always be like this. That's not biblical. In Christ, you are never just this, or you will never always be just that. I've said it before, the worst things we can say about ourselves in Christ is always and never. Well, I'm never going to do this, and I'm always going to do that. No, 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 no. God is bigger than that. If you put yourself in Christ's hands, and he is your Savior, he can grow you and shape you and make you an image of Christ, and he will take you places you can't even imagine. And he'll take you places you never wanted to go, but you're glad you when you got there. So we're talking about this idea of changing our past. And, and Sandra made a great point. She said, she said, you know, but you'd have to go back like every day and change the previous day. Wouldn't we have to do that if we could change our past? Like every day, I would live a life today, then live tomorrow and go, oh, 
I don't like what I did on Sunday, so we go back and change Sunday. And then Wednesday, we're changing Monday. And Thursday, we're changing Wednesday. And it would just be this cycle of going back and trying to fix these things over and over again. And we, we were able to sit there and say, no, no, but our past helps us to be who God made us to be. Without our past experiences and how God uses all things. Hear me now. It's not the things, it's God in the things. Okay? It's not the, God, it's not the things that matter. It's God uses all things for his glory. So the past that I've lived creates in me who I am today. And so we think, oh, God, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you. I'm so afraid of where it's going to take me. Listen, trust him. Don't worry about these things. You might think, well, I'm not, but look what I did yesterday. Look where I've been. Look what, no, no, no. Trust him and he will lead you and guide you and direct you. Because surrender, surrender takes great faith. But I believe it really isn't that big of a leap when we understand who God is. So fear is one, pride. I truly believe pride is something that we struggle with in this idea of surrender. We think we know better what and where our lives should go. This goes back to spiritual pride in a sense, but, but we ultimately tell God, no, no, I know where I, my life needs to end up. I know where I need to be. And again, this is going back to the idea that we think if we can just map out our life this way, then we'll end up where we need to be. But God's saying, no, 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 if you don't go through this struggle, you'll never be ready for that one. If I don't let you go through this season, I can't grow your faith to be ready for that one. If I don't let you go through this, then you won't be involved in that conversation when that person's saying they're going through this, and you can say, but look at how God got me through it. God's saying, no, there's a plan here. There's a plan. And God's not, God's not authoring bad things to happen to you. Understand me now. And maybe I need to, maybe we'll spend some time on this at a later point. But, but note this down if you're, if you're taking notes. Just because God allows something in your life doesn't mean God is the author of something in your life. So hear me now. God doesn't make bad things happen. Okay, so if somebody sins against you, God didn't make that person sin against you. They sinned because they were a sinner and they made a choice. But God will allow those things to happen because he has given us free will and says, no, no, I'll let it play out. But then he takes all those things, good and bad, and then uses them for his glory and your blessing. I don't know how he does it, but it's amazing how he does it. And some of us have been hurt in our life, and maybe you've been blaming God. God, but you did this to me. No, don't blame God for the things that have happened to your life. Trust God to say, no, God, you've allowed these things. I don't know why they happened or why you allowed them to happen, rather, but I trust you even in this. So fear, pride, and ultimately disappointment was the third thing I thought of in the idea of why we don't surrender our lives to him and give him complete control. Disappointment. And here's what I mean by this. We have trusted before, and it didn't work out. We have trusted before and it didn't work out or go the way we thought it should. So we decided to take control back. God, I trusted you. I gave you six weeks. You didn't do anything about it, so I took it back. God, I trusted you. I gave you 10 years and you didn't do anything. You didn't do what I wanted you to do, so I took control back. I mean, we need to really understand God's timetable is not our timetable. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. When you give him control, don't give him control with conditions. Don't give him control with expectations. God will give you control, but you better do it this way. No, giving someone control means you're giving them control. <laughs> I can't get on a plane and say, okay, I'm trusting the pilot to fly the plane, but I'm going to go sit in the cockpit and make sure he does everything the way I want him to. You better not do anything different than I want them to because I'm, I'm trusting you, but I'm trusting you with conditions. No, we need to surrender 
and give control because we trust that he is good. He is loving and he is gracious because he is our good and loving Heavenly Father. I think we all have experienced one or all of these in our lives, these three things. But I believe that we can overcome these things through Christ. I believe when we step out by faith and trust him with our life, not with a condition attached, but just in reaction to his love for us, we will experience his presence in our lives, and that will guide us through moments of fear and disappointment. Abraham is a great example of faith. And even becomes the father of a great nation. We read of him in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and his great faith. We would think, honestly, if you read it on your own, we don't have time to go through all of it, but in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we would think after the promise that God gives, see, as Abraham steps out, God reveals more of the promise. And God tells him what he's going to do, and he gives him all these great encouragements. We would think, God, this is great. Everything's going perfect. But I want you to notice Genesis 12, verse 10. Genesis 12 and verse 10. Abraham gives control. He gives complete surrender. He's stepping out by faith. He leaves his home. He leaves his tribe. He's trusting God. Man, he's a hero. He's doing what God called him to do. And look at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. Now, when we read words like that, we think, okay. We, and as, as Americans, we've never really experienced a true famine. At least not in our any time of our generation. Uh, if you study culture and you read about what famines look like, uh, maybe a good example of this would be in Luke chapter 15. You guys remember the prodigal son? He gets all this money from his father because he was a jerk, basically, and told his father, I wish you would die and just give me your money. This is my paraphrased version of the text. But he goes into a far country, and what does he do when he gets there? He parties it up, wastes all the money. And then what happens in that land? The Bible says a famine came upon the land, and he was living, what, with the pigs, and he was so hungry, he would have eaten the husks because he was starving to death. See, even there you think, okay, he was really hungry. No, no, no. Not to get too graphic, but there's stories of certain areas in our, country, or in our world at times in history where famines reached such heights, nations, tribes resorted to cannibalism because there was literally no food. That's how hungry people can get in a famine. We read that word today and we're like, okay, they were just really hungry. There wasn't a lot of food. No, there was no food. We don't get that because we could drive down 53 and pick up any number of restaurants we want to eat at. There was no food. Now, follow me on this. You're Abraham. You've just left your home. You've just left your country. You've just trusted God with your what? Your rights, your protection, and your provision. And then there's a famine in the land. Do you think Abraham sat back and said, really, God? You called me out here. You called me out here and there's nothing. There's no food. Who's going to provide? So what does he do? He goes to Egypt. Now, some people have said, well, that was a lack of faith on Abraham's part. No, that was intelligence on Abraham's part. There was no food in the land, so he went where the food was. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is what he did when he got to Egypt. It's not a bad thing that he went to Egypt. In verse 10, it says he went down in Egypt to sojourn there. We know that word already. For the famine was grievous in the land. So it's not just a famine. It's a really, really bad famine. Verse 11. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarah, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. 
many of the men can translate this, that she was hot. Okay, let's just be real. He's like, you're pretty hot. And I'm kind of worried. It's just, I mean, what's fair woman? That's, I mean, I'm taking it from the King James, putting it into the John Chippewa version. It's just what it is, okay? Verse 12. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee that thou art my sister, that it may be well with thee, or with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair, or, you guys can respond, it's okay, hot, okay. The princes also, the Pharaoh, saw her and commanded her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. When you read this all the way down, he, tried, he makes Abraham a really good deal for her, okay. But why does he make the deal for her? Because he thinks she's his sister. Now, it's a half-truth. We're not going to get into that. But anyway, it's going to time to go into all that stuff. But did Abraham lie or did Sarah lie? Well, Sarah lied. He said, you tell them when they ask you. But why did Sarah lie? Because Abraham led her into that. We talked last week about being God's man. Man, men, we need to set an example for our wives. We need to set the tone for our families. And the most disgusting and disturbing part of this is that Abraham's lack of faith wasn't just with himself. He pushed it off on his wife, causing her to sin. Listen, men, if your wives are used to covering up for you, that's on you. I, I used to work security at BBC, and I know you're not surprised because, I mean, well, look at me. But Okay, so, and we used to put boots on people's cars if they had too many parking violations tickets, okay? Be honest with you, as a 20-year-old kid, it was the greatest part of my job. There's the power you have over other students. Oh, okay, you want to mouth off? Put a boot on your car. We got going anywhere, okay? But these kids would rack up. We're talking hundreds of dollars of tickets. And they just kept doing whatever, so we put a boot on their car. Well, there was one time where this guy, I put a boot on his car, and actually maybe it was his girlfriend's car. I think it might have been his girlfriend's car. And the boyfriend came out of the cafeteria and just got all in my face. Christian college. This guy's a pastoral major. He's just, I mean, going up, and up one side, down the other. He's just going on and on and on. He wants to fight over this. So I said, I'm not removing the boot until the dean of students says I can. So my captain comes out, who is a married student, about 6'5", about 300 pounds. So he got in this guy's face, and the guy all of a sudden got really more submissive. It was amazing to see this happen. So I left. I get a call an hour later from the, the dean. Yeah, go ahead and take the boot off the car. I said, did they pay the tickets? Well, no, 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 but we're going to take care of it. Just go and take the boot off the car. Well, her dad was a big pastor in Texas and supported the college, and so you see how this goes. But fast forward to the next day, I get a call from this girl whose car was booted, and she's doing nothing but apologizing for the guy, that her boyfriend, that got in my face. I'm just really sorry that he did that. It's not usually how he is. And you know what stood out to me that moment? I said, why do you want to be with someone you have to apologize for? Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. No guy is perfect. We all screw up. We all say stupid stuff. We're men, okay? But when that happened, I thought, man, why would you lower your standards to a point to that's what you got to do? And that's what Sarah's doing. She's covering up for her husband who has a lack of faith. 
Abraham should have been leading her. No, Sarah, we'll be fine. Sarah, God's going to take care of us. By the way, isn't it interesting? Right before this, what does God promise Abraham? I will make thee a great nation. Did God make him a great nation by chapter 12, verse 11? So God told Abraham, I'm going to do this. Leave home. He leaves home. As soon as things got real, I got to take control. God, I don't trust you that you're going to protect me, so I got to protect myself. He was so afraid that he would lose his life, not trusting in God, took control back, and sinned. You're going to find out if you study the book of Genesis that this sin comes back to haunt not just Abraham, but even his next generation. The, The image that Pharaoh has for Abraham and Really, the Hebrews at this point is not a good one. He finds out that he lied. He gets mad at him. He says, you got to go. And you find out that affects the nation of Israel and Egypt's relationship for centuries to come. And I've always said this. How do you think it would have went with the Hebrews coming back into Egypt and becoming slaves had Abraham's first encounter with Pharaoh been a good one? Now, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have still been slaves. I'm just saying, but I think that the image would have been better in Pharaoh's eyes. Do you see how one sin can taint for generations to come. Abraham trusted, though. He walked out. He stepped stepped out by faith. But it shows me also that because we make the choice to surrender doesn't mean we won't try to take control back. Abraham lied because he thought they would kill him and take his wife. He didn't trust God to fulfill the promise he just made to him, even though he stepped out at first. So here's my challenge to you. When things get real... This week, will you keep trusting? Will you keep surrendering? Will we make the choice today to give him control, to step out and surrender, realize that we are sojourners in this land and we are just passing through? That we don't choose to just surrender today in church when it's easy, but this week when something unexpected comes along, we make choices and do what we can, like Abraham going to Egypt where the food was, but we also trust God in the things we can't control. Or when disappointment comes because it's not going the way we want, will we still give him control? Or will we take it back? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. Your head's bowed, and as you begin to pray there, I just want to encourage you. Very simple invitation this morning. Who's steering your life? Do you need to give him control? Are you trying to control everything in your life? and working him in as it fits, or are you giving him complete control and making choices as you can as you go along? Whatever God is leading, would you respond to him this morning? Father, we pray that you would just lead God and direct in all the things that we have talked about this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us focused on you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our mind to the understanding of who you are, that we would know that you are the Savior that died and rose again for us, that you are the Father that sent his Son for us, And you are the Holy Spirit that indwells us to equip us to do what you've called us to do. You are our God. You are our everything. And so I pray that if we say you're our life, if we say you hold us for all of eternity, will we give you control this side of heaven, trusting you in all things because we believe that you are good, loving, gracious, and that your way is the best way. Help us, Father, to not keep you in the passenger seat and look over for occasional suggestions but to put you in the driver's seat and be willing to be in your presence alone that you would be glorified. Lord, we love you and we ask that you would be honored in all these things. Would you stand to your feet this morning as the band leads us in a song of invitation? 
Invitation is simple. Just if you want to come, bend a knee. Respond to what God is doing. Maybe you'd come and spend some time in prayer this morning yourself, as a couple, as a family. Whatever God is leading, would you respond to him as we go to him in prayer this morning? Would you come? Would you surrender? Would you give your life to him today?